Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology, we retell the tale and have a chat about the story itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode number 32 of Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Fireside now has the same number of episodes as there are counties in Ireland and it is definitely my hope that one day we will have a story from each county we're not doing too badly to be fair I don't think we've had I don't think we've had too many overlaps in terms of our, the folk tales we've told been trying to spread around try and eventually have one for each of the 32 wouldn't that be nice if this is your first time listening to the podcast you're very welcome along thank you so much for checking it out i hope you enjoy it if you enjoyed this episode why not go back to the very beginning go back to episode one as we build through the chronology of sorts for what there is of irish mythology the folklore is a bit more out of out of sync not out of sync but just uh it can go in any order, so you don't need to need to listen to it in any particular order, which those who are regular listeners will well know. And to all of you, welcome back, and thank you so much for your continued support. If you like the podcast, please do continue to leave comments, ratings on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, please do uh, keep messaging me and following me on Instagram at Solo O-L-O-H-A-N-S-O-L-O. Oh, if you really like the podcast and you would like to support it in any way, uh, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast. We're trying to take this show live, uh, which we're finally getting in development now, which is very exciting. So I will hopefully have a lot of news for you all very soon. This episode is a new era. It is a new phase. Is that what the Marvel movies call them? Yes, this is phase three of Irish mythology. We are delving right in to the historical cycle or the king cycle as it is sometimes known. This is actually the last cycle chronologically in Irish mythology. So why are we doing it third? We're doing it third because the Ulster cycle, which is the one cycle I haven't done yet, is chronologically second. So it actually should have even been before uh, the Fenian cycle and talking about Fionn McCool. But I wanted to save that one. The story of the Ulster cycle of Queen Maeve, of Cú Cullen, of the Cattle Raid of Cooley. That is, it's the Odyssey. It's the Odyssey of of Irish mythology. It's our Beowulf. It's, it's everything, you know. And I wanted 
it to be the climax of the first year of this podcast. And the fact that it even can say that, I'm 32 weeks in now, but the fact that I can say that, that we uh, are 32 weeks in, and that in like 20 weeks we will have done a year's worth of podcasts, that is insane, that is fantastic. Uh, And hopefully, I think with the pace that we're going, we should nicely lead up to one year but we'll see how we get on i mean we won't i want this to be all killer and no filler it is quite a strange it's a beautiful story it's quite it's quite simple seemingly but then there are elements there are details there are images throughout it like there have been with a lot of the more recent myths we've been looking at that just go so unique you're you're you know there are always going to be echoes to other uh, mythologies in a lot of these stories, uh, which is what's kind of cool, you know, the monomyth, as as Joseph Campbell calls it. But then you also have certain elements that are just going, I can't, I can't see them being in anywhere else. And how could anyone, how could any grouping of people passing these stories down orally over the centuries, how could this have, where did this come from, you know? And you'll soon realize where they are. So I will stop talking i will stop rambling and get down to the tale and we'll chat more a little bit afterwards this is the first tale of the historical cycle this is the story of lowry lynchuk on fireside lowry lynchuk once there was a benevolent, generous, and all-round good-skinned High King of Ireland named Lowry Lynchuk. Although the king was famed for his kind heart and giving nature, his path to the throne would not be so easy. In fact, it was one of the longest and most gruesome in Irish legend. This is that story. Lowry's grandfather had been the High King Lyra Lurk. Lyra Lurk had a wicked brother named Covac. Kovac was jealous of everything Lyra had that he didn't. He felt every one of his brother's victories was a personal slight against him. The festering of such jealous paranoia wasted Kovac away until he was barely skin and bone. People began to call him Kovac Quail, Kovac the Miserable. Lyra Lurk knew well of his brother's jealousy, but when he heard of his deterioration in health, Lyra could not help but feel sympathy for Kovac Quail. So Lyra Lurk went to visit his brother in the hopes that he could mend their relationship and nurse Kovac back to health. But when knocking on Kovac Quail's door, Lyra Lurk accidentally stepped on a chicken, killing it. Kovac Quail opened the door to see what had happened. Henny! cried out Kovac Quail. You killed my favourite chicken! Now, now, Kovac Quail, that was an accident. Don't call me that name. The act of killing that chicken was all the proof Kovac Quail needed. He was now convinced that his brother was callously trying to thwart his every move. It was all the justification he needed to plan his revenge. Kovac Quail had a word sent to Lyra Lurk that he had succumbed to his illness and had died. A wake was arranged and Kovac lay down upon a table in his finest dress and pretended to be a corpse. When Lyra Lurk came and saw the body, he was overcome with grief. He threw himself on his brother's corpse and wept. When Kovac felt his brother on him, 
Coverquail took a dagger from inside his cloak and stabbed Lyra Lurk in his heart over and over again until his brother was dead. Coverquail then finally sees the High Kingship for himself. But paranoia doesn't disappear overnight. Kovac now sought to secure his rule. He had his brother's son, Alil, daughter-in-law, Anya, and their young son brought before him. There, Kovac had Alil killed in front of his wife and son. Not only that, Kovac forced Anya to cut out the heart of her husband and feed it to her young son. The gruesome horror of the deed made the child lose his power of speech, and Kovac Quail cruelly christened him Mwail, which means mute. Coverquail now felt confident in the security of his throne, as no mute could rule as High King. The mother and son were allowed to leave. Anya took her young son far south to Kirka Divna, which is now known as the Dingle Peninsula. There she raised her son to be the king she thought it was his birthright to be. But all the mother's care in the world could do nothing to heal the boy's lack of speech. There was only one thing that could heal that. The ancient field sport of hurling. The young whale was at the sidelines watching a hurling match when suddenly he was overcome and cried out in support of the winning team. Everyone shouted out, Lowry Shea, he speaks. And from that day forward, the now young man was known as Lowry Lynchuk. Anya was overjoyed her son could speak once more, but she soon worried that Kovac Quail would find out and send more men to murder Lowry. So Anya advised her son to go overseas to seek the service and protection of the King of France. So Leary Lynchuk went before the King of France and told him that his grandfather had been High King of Ireland and the treachery that had befallen him and all of their family. The king was impressed with the courage and resilience of the youth, so he put Lowry Lynchuk into the French army. The prince's training his mother had provided Lowry served him well as he was a more than capable warrior and showed a great aptitude for leadership. Over the years he grew to become the head of the French army. Word of Lowry Lynchuk's escapades overseas travelled back to Ireland and reached the ears of Moira the princess of Munster. Moira was an incredibly gifted poet and writer and fell in love with Lowry from afar. She wrote him a great love poem to win his heart and enlisted the help of her friend, the great bard Craftena, who went to France to sing it to Lowry personally. Lowry Lynchuk was moved by the beauty of the words the poet sang and was determined to sail back to Ireland to meet the woman who had written them. There was just one obstacle, as it still is to this day, the parents. The king and queen were well aware of the talent of their daughter. They were determined that no man would get his hands on her until he proved himself. Lowry Lynchok arrived at Munster, and once he saw Moira, he instantly returned the love she already had for him. But they were forbidden from spending any actual time together alone. To ensure this, Moira's mother would sit in front of her daughter's bedroom door, sleeping with only her left eye open for half the night and her right eye open for the second half, to ensure that she could always keep a vigilant watch. This, incidentally, is how dolphins sleep every night. 
But the two would-be lovers still had a friend in the bard, Craftina, who helped them once again. After dinner one evening, Craftina played a tune on his harp which sent every person in the household into a deep slumber. Everyone, that is, except for Moira and Lowry Lynchuk. Finally able to be alone with one another, the two lovers retreated to Moira's bedroom and spent their first blissful and passionate night together. But the next morning, the king and queen were baffled by what had happened, and when they saw their daughter, they knew Moira had been with a man. They demanded to be told who he was, but Moira wouldn't tell them. So an audience was called with all the people who had been in the household the night before. Initially, the queen thought it was Craftena who had defiled her daughter, as who else could have lulled everyone else to sleep? But rather than let the finger-pointing charade continue, Lowry Lynchock stepped forward, and living up to his name, he spoke. It is I who am the one responsible. Your daughter and I love each other. But you were so concerned with finding her the perfect husband, you refused to even consider anyone. But this is your home, and I accept the consequences. Contrary to how they thought they would feel meeting the man who had won the heart of their daughter, the king and queen of Munster felt mollified. They too knew of Lowry's history and escapades, and could not think of a more suitable husband for Moira. In love, and now with the forces of France and Munster behind him, Lowry Lynchock realised he now had enough support to take back his birthright. It was time for him to take Leinster from his wicked uncle, Covac Quail. Covac Quail had murdered his grandfather, his father, and even made the young Lowry Lynchock eat his own father's heart. Larry Lynchuk nearly lost his voice again every time he thought of the trauma he had suffered at his uncle's hand. But even though he had the manpower, he was keen to avoid all-out war. Leinster was his ancestral home. In fact, Lowry was descended from the Lagan, the very people from whom Leinster was named. He would not slaughter innocents for merely being afraid of a murderous tyrant. So Larry Lynchock gathered all the craftsmen in his service together and gave them a task. A task to build a great iron fort, built with iron nails, iron tiles, with doors of iron, with hinges of iron. At no point did anyone question Lowry's intentions. They trusted his will. When the great iron stronghold was complete, Lowry had it coated with a layer of wood and straw so that it would not stand out from others. His fort complete, Lowry Lynchock sent word to cover quail for a meeting. A meeting to organise a truce. A truce to resolve the bad blood between them, to avoid further bloodshed. Cover quail in true form was suspicious. So Lowry Lynchock told him to bring as many people as he felt he needed to feel safe. Cover quail brought his entire army. They arrived at the iron fort, which was camouflaged in wood and straw, but refused to enter. This is a trap, thought Coverquail. Nonsense, said Anya, stepping forward. If you feel that afraid of going into a dining hall, oh mighty high king, I'll go in first to put your mind at ease. Lowry Lynchock had to be restrained from racing forward to stop his mother, but Anya turned and caught her son's eye. She knew what the plan was. She knew this was goodbye. 
she knew this was the only way. Anya stepped inside the iron fort. Kavakwail felt satisfied. He and his armies followed Anya inside. Once the last soldier was safely inside, the fort was barred shut. More dry wood was then mounted and piled and set on fire. The iron fort cooked everyone inside like a pagan feast. Kavakwail, all his armies, and Lowry's own mother Anya perished. Anya knew what her son's plan was. Her life had been dedicated to his protection, to his attainment of revenge, to fulfill his birthright of becoming the High King at Tara. This was her final sacrifice. Larry Linshock was devastated by the loss of his mother, but because of her, he had avenged his father and his grandfather, and now unopposed, he became the High King at Tara. Larry did have a long and prosperous reign, but this is actually not where his story ends, because Larry Linshock had a terrible secret. No one knew exactly what it was, but they knew it had something to do with his hair, because Lowry would only get his hair cut once a year, and every year a barber would be specifically picked for the job. Once his hair was cut, the barber was put to death. This went on for many years, until one year a mother found out her only son had been chosen to cut the king's hair. She went to Lowry and begged for her son's life. Lowry was determined to keep his secret. But having lost his own mother, he couldn't bear to see the woman's tears. The barber's life was spared, on the one condition that he was sworn to keep the king's secret. The barber did as he swore, cut the hair, realized the secret, and told no one. Which was fine, until it wasn't. The barber soon became very ill. A druid was summoned who told the barber that he must get the secret off his chest, and if he could not tell a person, he must go out into the woods and just shout it out loud. So the barber went as far and deep into the forest as his legs would carry him until he came to a bulky, magnificent willow tree. He stuck his head inside and at the top of his lungs shouted the king's secret. He immediately felt better and was soon back to top health. But what was the secret? Well, not long after that, the bard Craftener, who had helped Lowry Linshock and his wife Moira so many times, broke his harp. Lowry had the forest scoured for the finest tree to make him a new one. The tree that was chosen was the very one the barber had told the secret to. It was chopped, crafted, and given to Craftena. The bard began to play, but it was the harp who sang. Gaw cluis couple ere Lowry Linchuck. Lowry Linchuck has two horse ears. Craftena was the most well-renowned bard in Ireland, and soon all had heard his song. Lowry Linshock was mortified at the discovery of his secret shame, but soon found, to his dismay, no one cared. He was still a benevolent king, save for a few executed barbers, and who hadn't done that and worse? Lowry Linshock felt remorse for what he had done and learned to accept the public knowledge of the secret he had kept all his life. 
and no barbers were harmed in the writing of this story. To be continued. And there we have the epic and unusual but glorious tale of Larry Linshock on Fireside. What did you think of that? I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you see what I mean now. There are there are various elements in this story that just stand out that you go, wow, what? Where did that come from? But let's talk about the elephant in the room, or rather let's talk about the horse in the room, or at least the horse's ears. If this story at any point felt like two very distinct stories, that is because it was, and I didn't know what to do, so I did what I did, and I hope it worked. I think it did. So basically, yeah, there are two different stories of Lowry Lynchuk. There is the main story, which I told you, which is the story of the boy's grandfather and his battle with his uncle and that incredible that incredible series of visuals, visuals where you have Cover Quail pretending to be dead and uh, his brother Lyra Lurk throwing his body over him and being stabbed to death. Like, that's wonderful. That's like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. And that's very that's very high fantasy. And then you have the gloriously gruesome image of the young Larry Lynchuk being forced to eat his own murdered father's heart. We are introduced to Anya. Anya is another one of the great old Irish names uh, that presumably came from these characters. You know, we've had we've had a Gronya, we've had Sive, we've these are these are still, to a degree, quite common names in Ireland, and they're very old, old Irish names. And I love meeting their namesakes along the way. There are, of course, these for the men as well, but they're a little bit more infrequent. You know, there are still men in Ireland called Dermid, certainly, but there are very few Lou's and Cucullans. There are a significant amount of Fionns and Ferdias uh, and Oshins and Oscars. Although, like, Oscar would be much more common than Oscar, for example. But there's something about the the female names particularly. Um, I'd be interested to find out. I wonder, are uh, are female Irish names more common to actually be given to to babies? Certainly of my generation and earlier. I'd be interested to look that up. For example, my name is Kevin, which uh, is Quivin in Irish. But you'd you wouldn't really find someone with the name Quivine who used Quivine uh, unless you were speaking Irish to them, unless they were in a Gaeltacht area. But as a comparison, the name Quiva, which is very much the feminine of uh, Quivine, so literally means like Keva. Uh, Quiva is incredibly common, uh, and you would never find a Keva, but you'd find loads of Quivas, which is quite interesting. But that's getting off. What I'm talking about here is Anya. So Anya is who we've met here, which is is a very another very classic Irish name, and it is actually the namesake of my girlfriend Anna. Anna comes from the name Anya. So special shout out to her right now, uh, or she'd kill me. Uh, I don't know if she'll even listen to this episode, but if she does, hello. Um, and Anya plays an incredibly integral role in this. In this episode, we've got 
her uh, rescuing her son for starters and then we've got this ultimate sacrifice at the end in this gruesome image this incredible this this giant iron fort like the world's first pressure cooker they're literally cooked alive inside an iron box it's mental it's wonderful in the darkest possible way but it, her sacrifice is required to attain justice for her husband and her father-in-law. And what a final sacrifice for Monya it is. We only meet her a couple of times in this story, but what an impact she does make. As Kava Quail does as a glorious villain, you have this image of him being all skin and bone, very like Gollum or something, speaking of Lord of the Rings. Picture him like a taller, just well-dressed Gollum, but still with that, that thin, like barely covering hair. And Lowry Lynchock himself. So we'll talk... The whole hook of the historical cycle is that... As the name would suggest, it is based on real-life people. But, of course, it is exaggerated, or in some cases, totally fabricated stories of these. Now, there will be stories that are totally true. There are stories of Brian Baru in in the historical cycle, and he is 100% true, and... His Some of his stories might sound like the most fantasy, but he is real, and to the best of our knowledge of our written accounts and evidence, we know that all the crack that Brian Baru is said to have done, that man did. But then we're going to get to some totally fabricated characters as well. Where does Larry Lynchock fit in? Somewhere around the middle. It seems he definitely was a uh, hiking very early on, and that so was Covet Quail and Lyra Lurk. They all were real people. There is evidence of that, seemingly. But of course, when this story could have been rumor that turned into legend, that turned into folklore and mythology, as these stories do. But to finally now get on to what I started talking, what, what seems like the st- beginning of this sentence about five minutes ago, is that's all with all that that I've just been talking about, that's all the one story. And then there's another story of Larry Lynchuk being a king with horse's ears. The heck you say? And it was such a dramatic change in tone from heart-eating and iron fort cooking that I was nearly not going to leave... I was nearly going to leave it out and just mention it as in the notes here in the conversation, but... It's too good an image. It's too it's too good a part of the story. Like, if anything, that's the part that people know. Uh, that's the part I had heard of beforehand, certainly. Um, I actually think it was on the Blind Boy podcast. Blind Boy sometimes talks about Irish myths. And he was a big influence on this podcast in the early days. And he mentions this story of the king with the horse's ears, which I always thought was King Sweeney, who is kind of the centerpiece of the historical cycle, so we're going to get on to him. But it turns out it's actually Larry Lynchuk. But where that story comes from as well, where you might know that as well, is the story of King Midas in Greek mythology. King Midas uh, was the guy with the golden touch. He had uh, everything he touched would turn to gold, uh, but he is rumoured to have donkey's ears as well. And they're obviously like... 
the image of a of a human with donkey's ears and a donkey's head that goes everywhere. You've got that in a Midsummer Night's Dream with bottom being turned into an ass. Uh, you've got that in Pinocchio. You've got that horrifying scene in Pinocchio where they're on Pleasure Island, and which, yep, yeah, that was the name of it, wasn't it? It was called Pleasure Island. And a bunch of young boys were taken to it by a giant talking fox. That's right. Um, Pinocchio was horrifying, but it is one of my all-time childhood favourites for some reason, because it is dark. And you have that harrowing scene where Lampwick is turned into a donkey for smoking cigars and drinking beer. And Pinocchio is given donkey's ears. So that's the image I have of uh, a Larry Lynchock. And the poor barbers. You've got then this entire side plot of the barber ha- becoming sick and having to tell someone and that beautiful plot plot twist of telling the tree and the tree being cut down and crafted in the harp and the tree in the hole and the hole in the bog and the bog down in the valley. Oh, I realised that just started to sound like... Uh, you got that... And cra- yeah, you've got Craftina with this harp that sings this and that all happens in the Midas story as well. But I included it because that's Irish mythology, you know. That's it is it is about dramatic change in tone. That's if I could if I could say one element about this that makes it stand out more than anything is severe shifts in tone from the almost absurd to uh, the gruesome and the bloody. And I love that. That's I feel that is Irish, you know. And so it became very much like an after or a a PS or a coda to Larry Lynchock's very kind of historical, you know, rise to power. Uh, just this brief story about his reign of putting barbers to death. Craftene is a wonderful minor character we see here. That's a fantastic name that there would be like an artist with the name Craftene. That is spelled C or A I F T I N E, I think is how it's spelled. Yeah, Craftene. And he's wonderful. I want to name I want to name a whistle or a flute craft and I, I always like to name especially Irish instruments. Irish instruments should have names, I think, and they should be like Irish mythological names. So I'll just have to buy a new whistle. Uh, yes, the image of Moira. Moira, we didn't mention. She only gets a kind of brief, a brief little moment in this. But what's really nice is her little midsection of this story is her taking the active part in it. I really liked that uh, in this story. It is it is the girl who is hunting down, the, not hunting down, but in pursuit of the man. You know. You've got the brilliant twist on that in Dermot and Grania, where Dermot pursues Grania, but Grania forces him to pursue her. And you've got a you've got another thing here, where rather than the image of the man writing the beautiful poetry and going to sing it to the woman, you have the exact opposite. You have the woman sending, writing the poetry and sending it. I love actually that it is Craftana who performs it, and that it's the words that that Larry Lynchuk falls in love with rather than the performance itself. There was something I really, really liked about that. But it, this incredible little bit of the King and Queen of Munster and their insistence that their daughter not marry a man who's not worthy and the mother sleeping with one eye open all night. And that was a detail I saw in versions of this story. They mentioned specifically that she keeps the left eye open for half the night and the right eye open for half the night. And that is genuinely how dolphins sleep. 
I read a book on sleep psychology last year called Why We Sleep by Matt Walker. I highly recommend it. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. None of us sleep enough. We're all going to die. Well, we'll all die anyway, but sooner rather than later. Uh, to be honest, it's every every person should read it. Uh, it's a very easy, very easy book to read, considering it's on sleep psychology. He lays it out very well, and he gives very practical, uh, very cr- practical help and guides to it. But one of the things he mentions in it is that dolphins are by bi- brained I forget the. They're basically they're, the hemispheres of their brain are split so that they can shut one down and keep one going at the same time, so that they can constantly be swimming. So they have one half of their brain open for half the night, so that they can keep swimming but still be resting and sleeping with the other brain. But human beings can't do that. We we don't. We're not split split brain by brain. I forget the phrase for it. Apologize if there are any sleep psychologist fans of this podcast. I will start to wrap this up now before I start to em and mumble and ramble a bit. So how the historical cycle will run, basically, it seems to be, from my limited reading so far, that it is more just a disjointed collection of stories, collection of cycles, rather than the Fenian cycle, for example, being essentially one continuous story with some side stories, but still very much being involved in the main characters. The historical cycle seems to just be, I suppose it has some kind of through line in that it is based on a dynasty, a line of kings, but they seem to be a little bit more random. But perhaps the the numerous and many similarities and through line will uh, show itself. But at the moment, there doesn't really seem to be, I have an idea of the story I'm going to do last, but the journey we get there is still quite up in the air. So there's going to be almost an approach like I do with the folktales to the historical cycle Overall, this was very much a very standard version of this story. I think one of the only things, elements I really kept to it was that I kept the audience a little bit in the dark about the King with the Horse's Ears. Usually it's revealed straight away. Uh, but I thought that kind of tied it quite nicely in to the previous part of the story, that it made it more mysterious. Like, what was the secret? Like, the secret was as dark as, you know, burning your mother alive in a giant oven. Uh, and then there's the rug pull of it being something so absurd as having horse's ears. And a lovely excuse to use a little bit of guelga. Little by little, I'm going to get there. So I'm going to wrap things up now. But thank you so much for listening. If it's your first time, I hope you enjoyed it. If it's your second time, I hope you enjoyed it. If it's your 32nd time, I really hope you enjoyed it. Please do continue to support the podcast. Follow me on Instagram at Solo O-L-O-H-A-N-S-O-L-O. Uh, please do support the podcast on patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast if you so choose but please do continue to listen as I love doing this podcast as a final thought uh, it feels like I haven't done this podcast in a while so I had to take last Monday off but don't worry you won't have noticed a gap because I am a couple of episodes ahead of myself so we're still able to be every week uh, as we always will be and hopefully uh I was down, I was a few days away. I went down to the Dingle Peninsula in West Kerry and where I am greatly ashamed to say I had never been. Irish people are notoriously bad for seeing places in Ireland as everyone from a country always is. The spectator sees more of the game as Stephen Fry beautifully said once. I'm sure he got it from somewhere else but I love that expression. But So I'm trying to bit by bit tick off all these bits especially since... I've got more and more into the the folklore and the mythology. So we went down to West Kerry, 
and it was fantastic. It was so it was just breathtaking. Like I'm from County Wicklow, which is known as a very scenic, very hilly and mountainous uh, county, and it is beautiful. I do think Wicklow is still beautiful. But Wicklow would be more like a painting, whereas West Kerry was just like living in a world, you know. You kind of look at a view in Wicklow and it looks like it, it looks kind of framed and, and very nice, but kind of contained. But the expanse of views of West Kerry, I've never seen I've never seen so much fill my eyes, just like these deep these deep ravines leading up to these enormous mountains and ridges and Dingle just kicks ass as a town. It's just awesome. Uh, just the the pubs, the tunes, the sea. Like we got to go lovely sea swims and the, and we stayed just outside a village called Ballyferreter, which is tinier and even more badass still. Uh, just highly recommend. Go go go! I can't wait to go back. You don't need any any particularly American people coming over here. I know Dingle's always right top of your list. You do that right there, but please do. I couldn't recommend it more. And Irish people who haven't, please do go. You won't regret it. Okay, I'm going to see you all next week. We're going to have a folktale. We'll see what that one's going to be. And I look forward to it, as I hope you do too. I will see you all. You will hear me all next week on the fireside, by the fireside, whatever. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.